0: Hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician, for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it.
1: Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough
0: there is risk, there must be choice. The media and the government have flooded the airwaves with messaging on the COVID shot, but they're silent when it comes to effective treatments. And they're silent when it comes to millions of injuries and even deaths. Welcome to Freedom Alive. Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist who's been a leader in the medical response to COVID-19. He has 51 peer-reviewed publications on the virus and the first combination of effective multi-drug treatments published in the American Journal of Medicine. Dr. McCullough is, is passionate about sharing the realities of the virus, effective treatments, as well as the facts about the COVID shots. Matt, when COVID hit America in 2020, we became desperate for truth about it. Tragically, we've not usually been given these facts, but I'm grateful for medical professionals like Dr. McCullough, who left the stands and entered the playing field to give us that truth.
2: People like Dr. McCullough ought to receive the Nobel Prize because it's people like him that have saved countless lives and had we had that kind of voice coming from our government agencies the cdc the fda the nih with regards to nutraceuticals how you can take vitamins and supplements to strengthen your immune system what you can do to create a more healthy strong immune system and then a multi sequenced medication protocol when you are exposed to covid or when you actually get COVID, we would have many, many more people that would have never gone to the hospitals and certainly many that would not have needlessly died. People like Dr. McCullough, however, are being censored, yet they ought to receive the Nobel Prize. And there's many others that are standing up like him, effectively treating and speaking to the issue of COVID
0: and patients that are suffering with COVID. Matt, that's great. And for those of you at home, we have so much information to bring you, but first, is our freedom alert with Matt it's next
2: one of the most vaccinated countries sets new record for COVID I'm Matt Staver co-host of freedom alive the Israeli Ministry of Health recently announced more than 72,000 people tested positive for the COVID virus that's the largest rise in infection since the start of COVID yet Israel has one of the highest COVID-19 vaccination rates in the world Nearly half of its citizens have received at least three shots. Nearly 73% have received at least one dose, while roughly 66% are fully vaccinated, according to government data. Israel was among the very first countries to roll out the injections more than a year ago. Now Israel is preparing to try a fourth shot in an attempt to stop the Omicron variant. But how many shots will it take? Make sure you know the facts. Well, it is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter McCullough to Freedom Alive. And Dr. McCullough, as we've mentioned, is board-certified internist and cardiologist, the most published person in the world in history in his field. And he has devoted the last two years to this issue of COVID treatment and also these COVID shots. And he is in high demand uh, all over the country, in fact, around the world. Welcome to Freedom Alive, Dr. McCullough.
1: Thanks
2: for having me. Dr. McCullough, you have been at the front lines. Uh, You were at the uh, Mandate March in Washington, D.C. You were part of a historic event that Senator Ron Johnson out of Wisconsin convened five, five and a half hours of some of the top experts on this issue. That is now all recorded in the congressional record. Give us a little summary about what happened during those congressional discussions by these experts and what do you see happening right now with regards to treatment and censorship of people in your profession
1: the setting and the context of this was extraordinary Uh, the first day was a public march and then a gathering at the lincoln memorial and uh, i joined dozens of uh, revered and respected presenters from all walks of life doctors scientists uh, public health advocates Uh, uh, nurses, firefighters, different religious groups, I told America that we're at a decisive time, uh, that there are three circles. There's a circle of medical freedom that's interlinked to a circle of social freedom to a circle of economic freedom. And once we begin to fracture these circles, if that circle of medical freedom is touched, let alone broken, everything crumbles, and that really the decision is in the hands of each and every person in America, actually in the world. And you know, while that rally was being held, simultaneously there were dozens of rallies being held all over the world. And that led right into uh, what I think now will be historic U.S. Senate panel testimony led by Senator Ron Johnson. I co-moderated the session. This was five hours of continuous Senate testimony.
2: And that's going to be in the Congressional record forever. And so I encourage people to watch that the video, as well as read the transcript. We'll be able to provide it to our viewers here as well. And in this particular testimony, what are some of the highlights that you have? I know you had mentioned, for example, there's basically been a two-pronged strategy. That's mask up social distance and then wait for or get the vaccine that's essentially been the protocol coming from the fda the cdc the nih and nothing nothing with regards to other kinds of treatment
1: the framework of the um the, the panel I laid out for the group art's what's called the four pillars of pandemic response and I published that uh, as permanently in the National Library of Medicine December of twenty twenty. The four pillars are number one, efforts to reduce the spread of the illness, two, early treatment to avoid hospitalization and death, three, to do the best we can in the hospital, and then four vaccination or methods to basically close the pandemic out with natural immunity. So we should have always had a four pronged approach. We should have always had independent expert teams in Washington working. We should have always had monthly reports to America and progress on these four areas. And when things didn't work, uh, we should have dropped them uh, and not continue them. Uh, What you said is exactly right, Americans didn't get any of that expertise. Uh, We really have a crisis of incompetency, but really a crisis of leadership, not laying out a comprehensive plan. And the testimony came from dozens of doctors, scientists, nurses, patients. Uh, It was absolutely extraordinary. Some of the highlights include the presentations by Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Richard Urso. Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, all outlining the the clear data that early treatment using a combination of medications works to reduce the risks of hospitalization and death. Current estimates are right now, 95% of all these hospitalizations and deaths could have been avoided. COVID-19 is a difficult illness. It's becoming easier uh, as the uh, various mutant strains become less pathogenic now with the Omicron strain, uh, which does break through natural immunity it's a mild syndrome uh, and the majority of those who've already COVID recovered or vaccinated it can be a slightly more severe in the unvaccinated but it's manageable now through a combination of emergency use authorization drugs and then appropriately prescribed off-label prescription drugs what these doctors told the senate in America is that there has been a concerted effort to block treatment to Americans
2: I know for example I can say personally uh, the kind of treatment protocol that you published back in 2020 in a peer reviewed article with regards to treatment of COVID and certainly more information has even come online and expertise and data since then, Um, it it saved my life. I know we followed that when I got a very significant uh, Delta strain and uh, you um, provided that platform, that protocol. So I know for a fact personally that when you follow that platform, that protocol treatment, lives are saved. I also know I have so many people, and it's very sad and certainly you see this, that go to the hospitals and they get the same kind of template treatment, which is really no treatment at all, and they go from having breathing problems to ultimately put on a vent to a trach and then then they die. Um, So many people, it seems like because of the censorship over proper protocol treatment that's available, have needlessly suffered and some have ultimately paid the Final penalty of death.
1: You know, that was Matt Staver, who is the uh, president and founder of the Liberty Council. Matt Staver is an attorney, and the Liberty Council is an organization that is charged with protecting religious freedoms in the workplace, personal freedoms, uh, the principle of autonomy, medical freedom, and he is a real statesman for America. I wanted to hear that. We started out with Steve Steiger who opened the program with him, and it was humbling uh, to get the mention for the Nobel Prize. I'm deeply honored. So many have worked tirelessly in the circles of early treatment. But I wanted to hear that personal vignette. Uh, Matt Staver, who I did advise on his care, he was cared very adeptly uh, by Dr. Stuart Tankersley and assisted by Dr. John Littell uh, and myself. I can tell you, (coughs) Matt Staver was extremely ill. And he was at home. Uh, He required high levels of oxygen. He required every drug we could possibly use to get him through the Delta crisis in his life. And he got through it. Matt Staver survived and it was absolutely gratifying to see him come back and to see him back in action. So uh, any of you interested in Following the issue of religious liberty in the workplace or if you yourself have felt threatened like your um, exemptions have not gone through or uh, you don't feel well supported go to libertycouncil.net You can fill out an online uh, form and you will basically be contacted and, um, and and They'll start to reach out and engage with your employer if you need to so um, clearly uh, Liberty Council is in the lead on that. We have a terrific show. I wanted to give you an update. Uh, The news cycle was very busy uh, in the last, basically, 10 days, and it had to do with the issue of myocarditis and transparency of data. Let me give you some uh, quick hits on that.
3: Doctors and scientists in the UK have uncovered something really troubling, data that seems to show a surge in deaths among young adolescent males. What's called the Heart Organization says that it received a letter from the British government's legal department. And that letter stated that among boys ages 15 to 19, deaths were nearly 20% above the five-year average. Meanwhile, excess deaths among girls of that age were below the five-year average. Even more disturbing is that they think the excess deaths among boys is understated due to counting delays in the sample. It's not clear why this is happening, but a group of doctors and researchers are demanding that the government investigate it. And given the questions swirling around myocarditis in young men, we should all want answers. Joining me now is Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist and epidemiologist in Dallas, Texas. Dr. McCullough, there have been similar concerns um, stateside, but we unfortunately just don't have a lot of good data collectors and maybe the UK is better at that. So what might be going on here?
1: You know, this is in the context of a report by Gill and colleagues in Archives of Pathology of two American boys, uh, teenage boys, who died days three and four after the Pfizer vaccines and autopsies confirmed fatal myocarditis. And now the Heart Group, which is an NGO, in the UK, an evidence-based group. They have pointed out this excess death in boys and a slight decrease in the girls. Now they started vaccinating in the UK for 16 and up in March. And then in 15, 12 to 15, they started in September, but they did achieve 60 to 75% vaccination rates. So I think there's two key things they wanna know. They wanna know during the course of this time, did they have COVID-19, the respiratory illness, and did they have any exposure to the vaccine? And then for each one of these cases, and there's not too many, there should be an investigation to what was the cause of death. And it should be relatively straightforward to figure out if COVID-19, the respiratory illness, the
3: vaccine, or potentially both played a role. Well, Biden's new science advisor keeps coming back like a boomerang, Francis Collins. Let's uh, slip some inconvenient info about the vaccines. Watch.
0: I think humility is appropriate also in talking about the vaccines. Yes, we were quite confident that the results of the phase three trials were very clear. But of course, we found out later that there were rare events uh, in the case of the mRNA
1: vaccines uh, of uh, pericarditis, myocarditis, really rare uh, side effects that could in fact be significant.
3: Dr. McCullough, he keeps saying they're rare. Um, What does the data say? The correct term to
1: use in uh, safety data research is called tip of the iceberg because we don't check everybody for the problem. This comes through spontaneous reporting. So back when the CDC and FDA looked at 200 cases of myocarditis. They said it was both rare and mild. I said just the opposite. It was tip of the iceberg and severe, since 90% of the kids were being hospitalized with this. Fast forward to today, in our U.S. CDC VARE system, we have over 30,000 cases of myopericarditis. Reports from Shower, from Trong and others suggest still at least two-thirds are still being hospitalized. And the most alarming thing is when an MRI is done, in fact, heart damage is being seen in nearly every case of vaccine-induced myocarditis.
3: Dr. McCullough, it's great to see you as always.
1: You know, that was Laura Ingram on The Ingram Angle, and I'm a frequent contributor to Fox News, and it's always hard to get in those key talking points. But I wanted you to know the myocarditis Problem with the messenger RNA vaccines is really becoming acute. We have over 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature or in the preprint server system. Fatal cases reported now by Gill, Verma, Choi. Uh, We have cases in men now extending up into the 60s. Myocarditis is a big deal. It's heart inflammation because the lipid nanoparticles deposit the messenger RNA coding for the spike protein. Some of it must get into heart cells. Now, the particular cell line is probably the pericyte, as shown by Avolio and colleagues. The pericytes are support cells that support the capillaries and the cardiomyocytes. The spike protein is produced. The body responds to the spike protein. And then there's inflammation set up in the heart. And tragically, with exertion and the outpouring of epinephrine and norepinephrine and the um, stress hormones there can trigger actually a cardiovascular death event. And we think that happened in the two boys in the Gill paper because the autopsy showed some changes of a catecholamine surge, meaning that either the boys went out and played basketball or were uh, exercising and came back, or they had a struggle, sadly, in their few minutes of life as they each died separately in their houses. The parents came home uh, mortified to find the two boys uh, had died just a few days after the second Pfizer vaccine. And they call for autopsies, which was definitely the right move. And there they found that indeed the vaccines were the cause of death. There's been a few additional reports about the vaccines and the cause of death that have come through uh, autopsy series. And I wanted to update you here. You know, for the longest time, we did not have uh, autopsies in patients with COVID-19 because there was a fear that, uh, you know, doing the autopsy would spread the uh, virus or people performing the autopsy would, in fact, contract COVID-19. But finally, autopsies are starting to move forward. One of the first ones was by Carolyn uh, Edler, and this was published in Legal Medicine an Elsevier Journal. The title of the paper is Deaths Associated with Newly Launched SARS-CoV-2 Vaccination. It was new back then, the Natty. BioNTech product. And there they reviewed uh, cases. They concluded that all the deaths were not related to the vaccine. But looking backwards here, uh, there is like a clear case of uh, the patient in figure one in the paper that the patient died of a fatal pulmonary embolism just a few days after the vaccine. So it's clear now that, in fact, we understand the spike protein causes blood clots and uh, in fact, that was the cause of death. I'd review that and say, listen, the vaccine caused the death. And then a paper by uh, Julia Schneider and colleagues, also from Germany. Uh, this was published in the er- uh, International Journal of Legal Medicine. And the title of the paper is Postmortem Investigation of Fatalities Following Vaccination with COVID-19 Vaccines, 18 Cases, five of which clearly the vaccine caused the death in the individuals who happen to get an autopsy after receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. Of the five cases, one was fatal myocarditis, and then four were vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpura, which uh, only one of those was diagnosed anti-mortem. So just like the two fatal cases uh, of the boys in Connecticut in the Gill paper, some of these deaths, there's no chance to save them because there's no warning. The initial presentation is death, And then the final update on the vaccines, a hematologic update, is in a paper published in Thrombosis Research, and it's a letter to the editor uh, titled, Four Cases of Acquired Hemophilia A Following Immunization with the Messenger RNA uh, BioNTech or Pfizer vaccine. And there are four cases of individuals anywhere from 14 days to 52 days after the vaccines, they developed basically what was like a hemophilia picture. There was bleeding into the tongue, bleeding from the nose and mouth, and interestingly bleeding into the joints. So any one of you in healthcare see a patient, uh, we rarely see hemophilia undiagnosed, but if you have hemarthrosis, spontaneous uh, bleeding into the joints, uh, make sure you have a high clinical suspicion for hemophilia A, which can actually be an acquired condition, just like vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea after COVID-19 vaccination. So I wanted to give you uh, that brief update. We have a wonderful show for you uh, today, and uh, be out this week uh, in our usual uh, uh, production schedule. Uh, I invited to the microphone, and I was really glad uh, she agreed to do it, and that's uh, Dr. Julie Pinesse. And Dr. Paness is a professor of ethics in Canada, who's lost her job over the COVID-19 vaccination issue. Uh, She did um, have an appearance in Ottawa. She knew exactly what was going on with the Freedom Convoy 2022 and the ethical considerations. So I've asked Julie to come on and make statements uh, and give us her viewpoints of, of what occurred in Canada, and very importantly, what's at risk for Canadian freedoms going forward. And then um, I had Dr. Michael Gonzalez, who's a naturopathic doctor, but he's on the faculty of the School of Medicine at the University of Puerto Rico. And he's been a real um, driver towards getting a comprehensive information out to patients about uh, the role of micronutrients and supplements in not only boosting immunity, but making the body more robust and more able to tolerate infection with COVID-19. So it's a terrific program. I believe I have just enough time for a trailer on music. So I'm going to go ahead and make my music choice and we'll play it here and and then you can give me feedback. Okay, well, I've made my selection with uh, Fear and Trepidation. So hold on. Uh, This is the uh, Detroit Rocker, Kid Rock, and We the People. And it was sent to me by uh, listener Tom Vaughn. So if you uh, have any comments, we'll field them to Tom. Here we go.
4: inflation's up like the minimum wage so it's all the same It ain't a damn thing changed hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. you piece of shit i don't see color black lives matter no
1: Okay, with all those F-bombs and expletives, let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. The microgel technology of healthy cell products. You know, microgel is the next generation nutrient delivery technology replacing tablets, capsules, and powders. You know, those are all passe. The formulated by world leading nutritional scientists, this unique technology ensures maximum absorption into the body by releasing extremely small, soluble, ultra bioavailable nutrient particles in the digestive tract. These are like gel packs that you would take if you ran a 5K race. They're produced exclusively in the U- U.S. from premium ingredient sources. The microgel is a more natural way to supplement the diet by eliminating the need for synthetic binding glues. Fillers, coatings, and anti-caking agencies. I use these in myself and my family members in my house. Uh, I am convinced they are a better product to get the micronutrients and vitamins to delivered in the body where they can maximally help you. So check out Healthy Cell. Go to healthycell.com. And in the promo code, put in out loud for 20% off your first purchase. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough report.
5: It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded We don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code Loud at genesisfogger.com outloud.
1: Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have a terrific guest. I'm so happy I got her for a few minutes, Dr. Julie Paness. Dr. Paness uh, has a PhD in ethics and philosophy. Now she's Canadian. She went to her undergraduate training at um, the University of Western Ontario in London, and then went to University of Toronto, received her master's degree in philosophy, and then returned to the University of Western Ontario and studied and received her PhD in ethics and philosophy. She has been a professor at the University of Western Ontario, and now has really been a leader uh, in the bioethics aspects of the pandemic response. And most recently, it's been in Ottawa. I've seen her there uh, for the Trucker Freedom 22 convoy. And I wanted to give her a few minutes to explain Uh, what in the world is going on in Canada right now? And how can she help our American and our broader worldwide audience put this in context? Dr. Panas, thank you for joining the McCullough Report.
6: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be chatting with you and and your American listeners today.
1: Well, why don't you set the context uh, for us? What is the big deal? If you were to tell somebody who already took the vaccines, They already took the vaccines. They think it's no big deal. I took the vaccines. Why doesn't everybody else just
6: take the vaccines? Um, What would you tell them? I would tell them that good, good for you. I think it's, what I mean, what I support and what most of the, the truckers and the supporters of the truckers that I've spoke with support is the right to make that medical choice. But mandates are not about are, are not about the medical choice to take the vaccine or not. They're about a political choice to force people to do so on pain of consequences that are quite great for some people, you know, losing their livelihoods, being afraid to be able to feed their family. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into names right now, but one of the people who uh, was central Um, in in organizing the protest in Ottawa has young children and has had his um, bank accounts frozen now and doesn't know how he's going to keep food on the table or keep... um, Uh, you know, keep the heat on. I mean, this is the situation that we're in in Canada. So I would say that if you've taken the vaccine, that that's that's exactly, and if that was your free choice and you didn't feel coerced or manipulated or deceived in any way, then, then that's good because we want to be able to support free informed medical choice. The concerns here are about whether or not we've been given accurate information and whether or not, and to what degree our decisions have been nudged. And now in Canada, uh quite possibly forced
1: you know these vaccines uh, all of them at least in the united states are still investigational use mm-hmm. so, but mm-hmm. even if they were fully approved uh there would be no precedent to force somebody to swallow a diabetes pill or right. for somebody to take an iv of a particular I- antibiotic we always have that principle of autonomy right that we, we have autonomy mm-hmm. you know we have um uh, the ability to determine what goes in our bodies or not we have you know jehovah witnesses that uh, yeah. don't don't receive units of blood how does
6: this level out with medical ethics now This is so complicated because we seem to have both uh, what I'll call an amnesia and then a hypocrisy. So we have amnesia in the sense that we've forgotten that autonomy is not only uh, one of the core bioethical principles or pillars uh, next to non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. And that was really, you know, um, articulated initially by Beecham and Childress, the fathers of bioethics in America, Uh, but it's foundational to yours and I. I think arguably our um, constitutions and and, uh, and Canada, our charter of rights. Uh, and we seem to have forgotten that, that this, I mean, you, you don't see the word autonomy used uh, by our government officials, by our healthcare uh, providers, by our, uh, in Ontario, our College of Physicians and Surgeons, and I'm sure the, the equivalents in the US. So it's like, we've just had this kind of amnesia about what's important ethically in medicine. And now also a kind of hypocrisy hypocrisy hypocrisy, in my view, over what science is and how it should work. Uh, So it's been very interesting to watch our members of parliament debate in our House of Commons over the last couple of weeks. Uh, And what we're seeing from our prime minister and from uh, his members of parliament that support him and and in our new democratic party that supports him uh, is just saying over and over and over again that the vaccines are safe and effective and they are supported by science. But what we have not seen is any evidence or data presented in defense of those claims that the vaccines are safe and effective. And if you are making claims without providing evidence or data, in what sense is that scientific? it's not. It's pseudoscientific. It's anti-scientific. So I think, and we're using that belief in, in my view, a kind of religious uh, obsession with uh, science to displace decades-long work to build up and support and understand how autonomy works and why it's important. You know, we use a term in
1: psychiatry, I use the term delusion, which is a firm, Mm. fixed, false belief. And I just tweeted about Neil Cavuto, who's a contributor to Fox News. And I'm I'm a medical contributor to Fox News. In fact, I'll be on tonight. Mm. Um, And Neil just, as fully vaccinated, just ended up in the hospital with COVID. And he Mm -hmm. attributes uh, his survival to the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's an example of a firm fixed false belief. There are no randomized trial data, no credible observational data that the vaccine confers survival once somebody's sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, Now there's Mm -hmm. plenty of evidence that other treatments do. So there are randomized trial data for monoclonal antibodies and oral drugs and and uh, both uh, off-label use and emergency use authorization. So if he said, you know, my life was saved because I received monoclonal antibodies on day three and I got sicker, I was, you know, went in the hospital for a few days, fine, I, I would accept that. Or if you said, you know what, my life was saved because I took uh, the Pfizer-Pexavoid drug ahead of time. I said, well, you have randomized trial data there, uh, but there are no randomized trial data suggesting that you take a vaccine months earlier for at least for this illness, that one reduces their chances of hospitalization and death. And what I wanted to ask you, though, is that what the ethicists on the other side say, they said this in our health system, and I heard an Australian say this the mm-hmm. other day, said, listen, this isn't about personal choice. The reason why this cannot be about personal choice, this cannot be about autonomy. And the reason why is it's because it's about other people. This is an emergency, and this is about your responsibility in not spreading it to other people people. What, what would you say about that?
6: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think the narrative, the, I mean, the narrative is only able to function because it has communicated these principles to people, which is that our sole moral concern should be about harm avoidance and about um, sacrificing oneself for others. And I don't think we probably have time to go into all of the reasons why those two claims are controversial and I think very complex. But I think that what what is notable is that it's a significant departure from the bulk of ethical and moral ethical literature over the last number of decades, which has been much more rights focused, individual focused, uh, autonomy focused. Um, But if we start asking some of the interesting moral psychological questions about, well, why is this the case? Why is everyone so quite happy to believe that COVID poses to them and to others uh, without any kind of risk stratification, that it poses to all people a very significant risk? Why are we so willing to believe that? You know, and I think that, and, and this has been discussed quite extensively, but we have been placed in uh, an inescapable cage of fear with messaging that is repetitive and insidious. Um, and we can't latch on to another story, another narrative. And I think when we've been put into this position of fear, the only way we can see out of it ourselves out of it is to enslave or imprison ourselves to a person or a group or an ideology that offers to protect us. And so when our government and public health officials say that over and over and over again, and it's all over our mainstream media, and I think yours as well, when they say over and over again that Uh, This is about safety. We're here to keep you safe. We saw this most recently over the last couple of days uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau defended invoking the Emergencies Act in Canada. uh, And then people defended him. And the language is something like, you know, we we did the right thing. I would defend it because this is about keeping people safe. Or Justin Trudeau is the only person who offered to keep Ottawa citizens safe. So that safety, security obsessed language um, is everywhere. And I think as long as we keep telling and pushing a story enforced by people in power, um, that there is a mortal threat that we don't understand very well, is ever present, and poses equal risk that is significant to all of us. We will be trapped in this cycle of fear forever. Uh, I saw it on Tucker Carlson, I think it might've been yesterday or the day before in his opening monologue gave a very powerful, um, he was sort of anthropomorphizing, uh, you know, the people in power and explaining that the reason they are able to say in power is because they keep us in a state of fear. And when you're in a state of fear, you're vulnerable and you're likely to grab hold of anything any lifeline uh any boy that you believe will pull you out of that state never mind what the trade-off is right
1: you know i had um an interesting experience last week i had an impromptu filming crew from the uk they said well we wanted to interview you and get your viewpoints on things and it wasn't uh well sketched out what this was about so i ultimately um you know got some understanding of what it was about and it was about both sides of this vaccine issue. We wanna say when we wanted your perspective. Mm-hmm. We went through a, an interview similar like this, but it was on film. And then you know afterwards uh they revealed who they had already interviewed. And Julie, they had already interviewed our public health leaders, the ones you see on TV,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
1: the ones who actually did not show up at the US Senate hearings on January 24th the second opinion senator mm. had, held by ron johnson i co-moderated it we invited them all and they're mm-hmm. the ones who didn't show up and so i asked the producers i said what did they say about deaths that occur after the vaccine what did they say about these serious non-fatal injuries and then she said she said their response was nothing is perfect and mm-hmm. then i asked them a question I said, what do they really believe? And she said, they really believe that the only way the vaccine works is if every human being takes it. That's the only way it works. And when she said that, uh, she was being, I think, very uh, sincere. It made sense. That made sense that if, if one is a stakeholder, and they believe the only way it works is every single human being, you would see extension down to six month old, you would see this um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, mantra, if they truly believe the only way it really works is this complete and total coverage, not only one time, uh, but it looks like every three or six months.
6: Well, if you put those two ideas together, that nothing is perfect and the only way the vaccines work is if you have perfect uptake, they're inconsistent principles at the very least, it's right? So, it's, so a, it's almost a self-defeating narrative.
1: It's so true. It's so true. Well,
6: anyhow, that, I guess
1: that'll be the only time at least my views will show up. juxtaposed against our health leaders views we've tried to engage in dialogue at many different levels uh we have you know the thing in medicine i'm an md doctor we don't like this term narrative narrative means to tell a story we don't really tell stories in medicine we just basically review data and we use inferential thinking to try Mm -hmm. to arrive at truth and we're constantly striving to arrive at truth um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we have, quote, the narrative coming from our federal agencies, and then we have, I guess, a counter narrative, which is uh, among some news stations, not all, but becoming more and more, including Fox and Newsmax and OAN and, um, and a whole a lot of the original um, uh, freedom types of networks. Uh, individuals such as myself and uh, a small cadre, maybe half a dozen or so, who can be mm-hmm. on TV and give uh, some commentary, uh, you know, not, not completely diametrically opposed, but to give some interpretive framework for
6: people to understand what's going on. You know, I think there's a, an analog happening in journalism, which is that, uh, you know, journalists have a story, a narrative that they need to tell first and then go on the hunt for facts or data to fill it in. And we're seeing the same thing, as you say, in science and medicine. And I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason why it's so concerning or offensive, especially in medicine, is that medicine over the last several years or decades or arguably forever has been evidence-based, importantly so. And that's the opposite of getting data to fit your narrative, right? So it should be bottom-up rather than top-down. And we're seeing this desire to Pigeonhole all of the messy data into a particular narrative arc, and it doesn't necessarily fit very well, um, and nor, nor should it, right? I mean, that person who says that nothing is perfect—well, true, because uh, human beings, whether in physical body or in their in their psychology or in their uh, attempts to live a moral life, are, are not perfect beings. And I think we've really um, we've really erred over the last two years if for nothing else, our inability to be honest about the imperfection of scientific systems, about the imperfection of government, about how to deal with messy trial data, about uh, how and to what degree to be honest about it. Um, And until we understand how important that is, uh, we, we won't get back on track, I think, in, in medicine and in science and journalism and politics.
1: Well, I tell you what, you just gave me a nice phrase to talk about tonight, the intellectual honesty over the imperfect science that we deal with. Julie, I just want to ask you one last question. Yep. You know, today it hit the feed, and I think it came from somebody in the law enforcement ranks in uh, Ontario, where the comment was that... The people who are there uh, in Ottawa, Mm -hmm. that they will be hunted, they will be pursued, and they will be prosecuted. Is that real?
6: They are currently being so, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, I'm in a tricky position. It's hard for me to say very much right now, but I can say that... um, You know, our government, our prime minister, our deputy prime minister, Cynthia Freeland, they have been explicit uh, that those who support financially the protests will have their accounts frozen and they won't be unfrozen until we start to behave. Um, Lawyer groups who are supporting the truckers and the protesters are also vulnerable. People's accounts have been frozen. People have been arrested they have been beaten by police. I mean, these are things that have happened and the threats continue. So um, I have a colleague who's in uh, Southeastern United States right now. And he says that that people there, are, they just think it's a joke what's happening here. It is, it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. Uh, people, we're, we're afraid for our livelihoods uh for our lives many of us are wondering if we made a mistake in not trying to get out of the country uh before we had the opportunity i mean things are very dire make no mistake
1: i tell you what those are sobering words and i think we're going to have to leave it there julie but uh you know i can tell you for on behalf of the american audience and our wider worldwide audience we really applaud those truckers, but also those scientists and others who congealed in Ottawa to give a message, they gave a message to the world. And it was interesting, people, we the thing we said the most is, who would have guessed it would have been Canadians? And who would have guessed it would have been Ottawa, and in particular, the truckers? Who would have guessed? And, um, and I can tell you, it's remarkable times. I don't think any one of us will ever forget these inflection points uh, in the course of uh, human history that are playing out right in front of us. So I want to thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for joining us on McCullough Report.
6: Thank you so much. There's no doubt that we are writing history right now and our chapter isn't done and it's not clear how it's going to turn out. So thank you for giving me a voice and continuing to talk about these important things.
1: Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report.
0: Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC-11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, Taking AC-11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC-11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
1: Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the microphone for the first time, Dr. Michael Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez received the equivalent of his undergraduate degree at the Catholic University in Puerto Rico. He went on to receive a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico. He went to the um, uh, health sciences uh, in the Health Sciences Center in Colorado and had additional studies, graduate studies there, uh, went on to receive a a PhD in biochemistry at Michigan State. And he's trained as a natural medicine doctor at the John F. Kennedy School. So he's got a tremendous range of background uh, with respect to uh, the physiology, the biochemistry of how the human body works and how it interacts with the environment. And like so many, naturopathic doctors and integrative medicine doctors, they've really taken a lead in the COVID-19 pandemic response. Dr. Gonzalez, welcome to the McCullough Report.
7: Thank you, Dr. McCullough, for inviting me.
1: So can you give us some context about uh, what is your situation in Puerto Rico and how has COVID-19 influenced the island?
7: Well, let me tell you, its we're having a horrible situation here with the governor. The governor is taking the same stance as in Canada. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, actually even kids cannot go to school if they don't have the, the vaccine and, uh, it's a lot of restrictions, a lot of censorship, you know how it goes. And, uh, that's why we kind I kind of approach you to, you know, to, so we could together write that article that I'm writing. And actually I asked you for the, for, uh, to, to, to connect me with Ron Johnson, because we have a group of professionals here, physicians and, and scientists who are, uh, you know, in total awe with what's occurring here in Puerto Rico and the United States and worldwide. So uh, we want to give, you know, any support that we can give you guys.
1: So how has COVID-19 impacted the island from the very start?
7: Well, it's been, uh, it, it impacted, but we had the same trouble you guys had in the sense that there was no uh, early intervention They was just talking about vaccines and they told people to stay home until they get really in bad shape. And then when they get in bad shape, they go in, they get intubated and 90% of the people die. So they were kind of promoting that kind of thing, which is, I think it's a crime against humanity. Uh, we were proposing, we, we even made a proposal to the department of health of utilizing high dose IV vitamin C to stop the cytokine storm and try to save lives in a sort of a cheap uh, way that will not cost too much and that will be effective for most people. We've been uh, promoting ivermectin, doxycycline, all these repurposed drugs that proved to save life every place, but, but not in the United States and, and in Puerto Rico. So it must uh, be
1: frustrating because, you know, we did work with the Hondurans and Honduras and so many places across Central America, I think to a lesser extent, the Caribbean, um, used uh, various forms of early treatment. How about the modern drugs now? Do you have access to monoclonal antibodies and the Pfizer or Merck drugs?
7: Yes, and uh, actually, there's been a lot of toxicity with severe. and, you know, it's, that's what they sell. They sell that they don't, you know, they don't want to use. Uh, actually, it's kind of even kind of prohibited to use repurposed drugs, to, to use IV vitamin C. I, I saw uh, when you guys presented to the Senate uh, I remember uh, uh, when Dr. Marik was saying that, that, he was, uh, that they even prohibited him to use IV vitamin C, which he has been using to save people of sepsis, in, not only in COVID, but in other, in other, you know, other types of infections. So it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, I, I never thought I would live something like this in the United States, to tell you the truth.
1: I can tell you what, it's certainly been impactful. Now, there are analyses in the United States that Caucasians have a better survival than Hispanics and Blacks with COVID-19. Do you see that same differential with the Puerto Ricans versus kind of other um, referent groups in Puerto Rico?
7: I think so, and I think it has to do with uh, the relation of, of glucose insulin. Uh, we are predisposed here, we have a high levels, most of the people have a high level of uh, homocysteine, and we don't, we kind of lacking that enzyme that converts uh, Folic acid to 5-methylfolate, and I don't think we're doing the met proper methylation. So we we have this homocysteine hanging around and doing damage to the endothelial parts. And what we what we believe is that people that have uh, high insulin will also have an increased number of AC2 receptors, and I think that should, could be a problem.
1: Yeah, so I think there's two factors you're talking about. One is Uh, mutations in what's called methylene tetrahydrofolic acid reductase MTHFR that lead to higher levels of homocysteine. And there is a relationship between that and thrombosis. And we know that microthrombosis is part of really the terminal uh, pathogenic sequence of SARS-CoV-2. And then the second issue is hyperglycemia and glycemic control in the setting of diabetes and prediabetes and Um, I've interviewed on this program Dr. Yvette Lozano for Dallas, and I give her big credit for this because she made the original observations. And in doing a literature review, Michael, I was stunned at how many papers show that hyperglycemia, poor glycemic control, elevated hemoglobin A1C, and diabetes are associated with terrible COVID-19 outcomes.
7: Definitely. definitely We've seen that here, too. Actually, there's one of the things that I, I got COVID about two weeks ago. And I use a very high dose of IV vitamin C. I use 50 grams in the first uh, shot. And the next day I had 25 grams. And the third day I had 25 grams. And the third day I was excellent. I had no, no uh, anything. It took me like a week, you know, because the problem that I had is it started on Saturday. I had no access to vitamin C till Monday. So Monday I got the vitamin C and everybody in my family, my wife, my son, my uh, grandson, everybody had the disease. Everybody got uh, the IV vitamin C, but the baby, the baby didn't. But the baby did okay. He had fever like one day, and but he was playing and singing, and the next day he was okay. You know, kids basically, if they don't have any any comorbidity, they, they do very well. And, and people in general, you know, they do well. My son didn't do that well. I don't know why. He's uh, He's healthy. Uh, he likes a lot of candy, though. He might have a, a, a glucose problem, but he's, he's skinny. I mean, you know, any case. But that doesn't have anything to do with that, as you know. But in any case, I think he was the worst. And uh, I did all kind of okay. My wife did okay. His uh, the uh, My son's wife did okay. The baby did excellent. But everybody, every adult had a IV vitamin C, at least. And we were taking the oral stuff. We were taking pine bark, NAC, NAC. Uh, Vitamin D, zinc, uh, quercetin. I was taking even enzymes, omega threes. I was taking the whole, you know, uh, the works, and we did okay. We did excellent. But the thing is that uh, they don't. Nobody talks about that here. They only talk about that the vaccine, the vaccine, and and you know the vaccine. It's kind of a tool, but it's a very weak one, and and one that has has more questions than answers. So. You know, I have a lot of trouble every day. I, every day, I, I think I'm believing more all these conspiracy theories because it's. I mean, you know, it's incredible that uh, it, it, that's the only thing they're looking. It's like a tunnel vision to the vaccine, and the rest of the things, well, you know, hydration, sleep well, uh, relaxation, uh, supplementation, diet low, low and you know, low and simple and refined carbs and more vegetables and fruit. Nobody talks about that. Only me. And, and, and I don't get any access to, to, uh, to the main, uh, you know, press and that sort of thing. We only have these small kind of uh, reporters that, that interview us and that sort of thing. You know the censorship. It's the same thing as in the States. It's the same thing.
1: Now, uh, let's turn our attention to the vaccines. Um, have you seen a considerable number of vaccine failures where people are fully vaccinated, they get COVID anyway?
7: Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, definitely and that's the issue you know it's 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 incredible because i had a discussion with a, a, a with a physician and he was defending you know the vaccine and stuff and i said but look you have more people dying and comp- and getting complications of the vaccinated than unvaccinated and uh, he mentioned, oh, but you have more number of vaccinated people. I said, but that's not the issue. The issue is you're supposed to get that vaccine, not to die. If you're dying taking that vaccine, it's not working. <laughs> and and the thing is, I don't know what what you know. I had I had a very pretty, pretty good uh, professor of immunology it was Robert Wu Bernstein, in Michigan State. But I don't know they have, they probably have to review their immunology because I don't know why they don't see as a, this type of vaccine, which is a messenger RNA, which is very specific to produce a protein from the, from the original virus, a protein S, that would if, if you have all these mutations on the new variants, it's not gonna work on them. I mean, it's simple thing, it's not, it doesn't take too much to understand that. So that's what we've been seeing that as soon as you have more variants, it's working less. So I don't know why they, why why a booster. It doesn't make any sense. A booster for what? What you gonna, you're you're going to create non uh, neutralizing antibodies? What will probably produce a ADE effect. You know, antibody dependent enhancement. It might stick to the to the protein to the protein S, but it might bring it to the cell and, and make it worse. So you're perpetrating variants when you're doing when you're vaccinating with this type of thing, and there are all these variants around.
1: Well, there's no doubt about it. It's frustrating, but I'm so glad. Uh, that you're taking the initiatives there in Puerto Rico to uh, break through the censorship. You're right. We do need healthy dialogue. We need different viewpoints. uh, No doubt about it. Um, Dr. Gonzalez, do you have any final words for the uh, McCullough Report audience?
7: Well, basically that uh, people should keep taking, I mean, even if they get vaccinated or they're unvaccinated, keep taking your supplements, the vitamin D, the vitamin C, the zinc, the quercetin, the neck, uh, and to try to eat less sugar, uh, try to eat less fat also, but, you know, the, balance them out. Uh, I'm, I really would like people to start eating more vegetables and fruit. Uh, they have these all these protective, these phytonutrients and, and, and fiber, and they will reduce the, uh, the quantity of insulin and, and circulating glucose and, and all these uh, problems that seem to be associated with, uh, you know, the high carbohydrate, simple refined carbohydrate intake.
1: So uh, your points, I think, are well taken, that there are dietary and lifestyle determinants of uh, probably not only the binary incidence of SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 infection, but also hospitalization and death. Well, Dr. Gonzalez, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Oh, it's
7: been a, a pleasure to be with you in, in your program. Let's thank get real. Let's get loud on
1: America Loud Talk
7: Radio. This is a McCullough Report.